Hello and welcome to this week's Property Matters, the show that brings global industry trends to an Irish audience. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email the show at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is Carol Tallon. As you may hear from the noise around us, we are out and about and on location. We have a special one-hour show today with Michael O'Flynn, CEO and Chairman of the O'Flynn Group. So thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Thank you, Carol. Again, People will be able to hear the buzz. We're out in the Alex Hotel after recording an interesting BizNow panel, which is an industry discussion made up really of an interesting group of uh, John O'Connor from the housing agency, uh, Brona Darcy from Tua Housing, and of course chaired ably by um, Pat O'Farrell of Irish Institutional Property. So tell me a little about O'Flynn Group, and then we'll be able to add a little bit of context around the panel discussion. Okay. Look, O'Flynn Group has been building houses in Ireland since 1978. Back then we were known as O'Flynn Construction. That's one of the companies now within the O'Flynn Group. In addition to house building in Cork, we have been doing commercial industrial office developments down there also. In the early 80s in Ireland, things were very difficult. So we embarked on some schemes in the London area. We didn't go to Dublin at that time, even though we're very much now in Dublin as well as Cork, because we saw the London market as an alternative to the Irish market. And it worked very well. There were different cycles for a long number of years. And as I said, the early 80s were rather difficult um, in Ireland. And were you, you weren't coming from a background in property. This wasn't a legacy business you no, were coming no, into. No, we're first generation you know, in that regard. And um, we started out with house building and it, it grew incrementally from there. Okay, and how did you get into house building? Well, we I come from a farming background. So um, my father, my brothers were in the business and one brother of mine worked full-time with them at that time. So we decided to come together. Um, I had qualified as a technician and we didn't really, I suppose being from farming background, we probably were happy to... Um, have something of our own. Um, so we, we started into house building in 1978. And what kind um, of experience would you have had kind of well, post-school at that point? Well, he would have had um, a good experience of working with, with, with the other side of the family. I was very much on the organisation side. And um, it, it went from there. We, we grew slowly, as people should in any business. And um, we culminated in dealing with the crash that came some years ago and thankfully we have emerged from that. Lessons learned, but lessons that should be learned by everyone, not just those in the developer sector. Yeah. You know, it's interesting where you jump over to the, I suppose, the last big crash, but I'm sure there were challenging times before that as you came up through. Look, um, being a house builder in the Cork area, I could say has, has, has always been challenging and we very much had to tailor our product and tailor our overheads and our, our, our whole offering as such that it, it worked at a time maybe in other parts of the country things might have been more lucrative but we, as I said in, in the early 80s, things almost gone to a halt in this country and people have forgotten now how bad things were back then. But as we move, we started up in the UK. I've never left the UK. And in fact, the UK has proved to be a very important um, source of, of giant ventures, money, that has stood to us to this day. We, we work well with people, with partners. We, we, um, we're a very um, committed company. And we take everything we do very, 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 very seriously. And I think um, people who work like that attract the right kind of relationships. And in terms of the team, have you family members? I mean, are you, are you looking at this becoming a second generation business? Well, I am. My my brother is my uh, my brother and I started together. We still we're still together, of course, in the business. But I have. Um, you say, of sure. course, but that's not something that can be taken no. for granted at all. Well, uh, it's the case with us, but it, sh- it shouldn't be taken for granted. My, I've, I've two daughters in the business. One is a surveyor and the other is an accountant. And I also have, an, uh, have a son who is a surveyor as well. 
tour of Cork and one out of Dublin, so there is a bit of a spread in that. We have offices in Cork, Dublin and London, and um, people tend to um, move about with, with the different offices and the different demands. And why do you think London was an automatic first step for you out of Cork rather than Dublin, which most well, people would assume would be a natural next step? Well, I, I remember very well saying Dublin is an extension of Cork. It's the same economy. It has the same ups and downs. And believe back then, people find this hard to believe, but England and Ireland were always out of tune as regards markets. One, when one was um, going up, the other was a bit behind. And when one was going down, the other was a bit behind. So that, That's it, interesting. Just in more recent history, I would track the London market as being about nine months ahead whether it's going up or down, I would say it's about nine months ahead of Ireland. Would you... I'd say back then it was more. Really? I wouldn't disagree with you. But, you know, it, it, you have, no one can adjust quickly in our mm. business. And that's one of the things that people don't understand. You know, when we did some of our developments in Ireland that proved problematic, it's easy to be judgmental at the end. Take the Elysian in Cork, which I has stood the test of time. It, it held, and it's probably one of the buildings that you're most well known for. Yeah, and that's why I'm bringing it up before you bring it up, <laughs> because people talk about it. It's it's a building that it's well designed, well developed, well everything. It's just our timing was wrong. We we spent two years getting planning and coordinating all that goes with something of that scale, and we were two years building it. But of course, in a four-year term, anything can happen in the world. We had the financial crash that we have got overblamed for. We didn't expect anything of that scale to happen. I think the overblame is a really important word there because that's definitely something that um, previous guests on our show would have echoed as well. And in fact, um, there was a developer, actually another Cork developer, um, who's now operating in the UK market um, uh, over in Ireland. And he spoke about the damaging effect that the media had on business at a very crucial times, at a very crucial time when actually deals needed to be salvaged. And, well, and the whole formula was um, liquidate, really. Um, I understand why NAMA had to be established. I, do, I think they made it bigger than what it needed to be. I was an advocate of a bad bank in each of the banks at the time. But there's no doubt that people tended to want to blame the bank, the banks and the developers. Did but people just need somebody to blame? There I think a lot they did. of anger at that time. I, I think they needed somebody to blame and a lot of them were looking for retribution. You know, it wasn't just blame, which is unfortunate because I remember in 2012 saying we were going to have a housing crisis in this country. People gave me funny looks at the time in an interview I did with the Sunday Independent. I actually remember that interview. You were one of the first to say that we were having a housing crisis of the opposite to what everybody else was feeling. We were thinking housing crisis in the terms of we're still in chaos here from the fallout where you, back in 2012, were identifying um, an undersupply in the market. Well, the fundamentals of the economy were still good. Of course, we were in a, correct, in a correcting phase. There's no doubt that at that time, I saw no forward planning. People were acting as if we don't need any more development. Development is 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 finished with. Something I heard in a number of places. What do you mean finished? As in people just we, couldn't we have, see we, beyond. They couldn't where see we beyond the, where we were at that time. People in in serious policy areas, as far as they were concerned, we have not alone do we have enough development, we have too much development, and we don't need any, any more development. Development has a slow cycle. It takes time to plan it. It takes time to build it, and unfortunately, I could see at the time that we had a stock situation we were, which we were running down. Property, of course, went too high, but now it was going too low. And some of the people who were driving it down and talking it down, like, if you have any product, be it a house or anything else, that goes below the cost base, that's going to cause trouble sooner or later. And I could see a situation where not alone were we, were we not building, we weren't planning for building, and we had almost an agenda to drive prices away below replacement cost. And, you know, as has, has been proven, I don't like being proven correct, it's, we're still recovering from that. 
we're still struggling to get product viable, as you may have heard today. And it's all about viability on one side and affordability on the other. But you need the policy to support that. The macro policies have to be right. The macro policies back then weren't right. They're not right today. And we have to face up to the fact that we need 35 plus thousand houses in this country. We need policies that will enable the developer industry. And see, people at that time, some people felt they could replace the developer industry. Like, that was very short-sighted. Well, like who? Like, let's, let's get specific. Policy makers, decision makers, they felt that so, we were instrumental in causing the crash. We actually weren't instrumental, but we were a part of it. Mm-hmm. And I've always been very quick to admit that. Some people say too much so, but look, I I remember um, at some years ago I spoke at something and I said, the planning industry, the professional service industry, the accountancy industry, all of these were involved. You know, places didn't get built before they got zoned, got planning, got infrastructure. And people tend to forget that all these public decisions were made before the developer with the bank arrived at the end to, yeah. to deliver a product. We never went outside the main metropolitans. I would contend back then, and still contend, that we created zoning in this country that was never going to be needed. We So we didn't. But how did that come about? Because I think that's something that, um, again... <sighs> Despite the the fact that this was done kind of by local authorities, you know, perhaps with political influence, I think that part of the blame game here goes back, it seems to be pointed towards the developers again in terms of lobbying. But was that a reality? Did that, is well, that see, really how zoning came about? It wasn't really. I mean, there was cases of lobbying and I, I, mm. I don't, I don't um, support that. But the, the reality is the councillors everywhere wanted a piece of the action. So... In lots of local authorities around the country, deals were done between councillors, you back mine and I'll back yours, and then the executive may not have set out to do something, but once the the shareholder body being the councillors within the council back it or rezone it, they're then forced with the situation that it has to get serviced. And of course, then some developer comes along and because it's zoned and because it's serviced, they can go building. But like I would contend at this moment in time, we don't have enough land with infrastructure that's available in the right place. Okay, no, I think in the right place is maybe the important point there because I think most people would take the view that we do have enough land, whether it's zoned or not, it's certainly, um, or in terms of infrastructure on it, it's certainly capable of having that done. So is it a case, like, are, are we starting to repeat the bad patterns of of uh, putting infrastructure in the wrong places? I, I don't think we're, we are doing that, but actually what we are doing is we've poor land management in this country. We are not asking what do we need, where do we need it? Now, you even heard it at, at the discussion today, the only, everyone thinks, oh my goodness, um, it's all brownfield, it's all apartments. It's not. Mm. Like... Well, that's quite a Dublin-centric, and it's important it's, to say that this event was hosted in Dublin, and that's quite a Dublin-centric view. And I would contend it's not just Dublin-centric, yeah. even though yeah. uh, you know people put up their hands and say, "Oh, yeah, we we don't want to commute." But if you're if you have a family, you don't want to be living in an apartment either. You know, that's really interesting because actually, I feel, and it's worth pointing out to listeners there that there was um, to gauge the the reaction of the industry, of, of the audience. There was a question asked, but it was really quite a pointed question. It was basically, who would like to live within walking distance of the places where they live, shop, socialise, work? And on the alternative side of that, who wants the commute? Now, here's the reality. Nobody wants the commute. However, I did put up my hand for the latter, as in I did put up my hand, not for the commute, but for what goes with it. Because like yourself, I grew up on a dairy farm. I don't want to live in an apartment 
within 10 minutes of the city centre. Um, but I also don't want a, to live in suburbia. There so, might be a time in your life when you want to live mm-hmm. in that situation. Mm-hmm. But there comes a time then when you want to live in a house. Yeah. So we, at this moment in time, and you heard it this morning by some of the panellists, mm-hmm. it's the only show in town in that regard. Yeah. In my opinion, it's not the only show in town. You have to have a variety of housing in a variety of locations. And Dublin is probably the only city that can take apartments easily because of the scale. Small cities, and dare I say, Cork is a small city, even yeah. though people mightn't appreciate me saying that. Dublin's a small city too. Well, it is, but look, it, it's the it's mm-hmm. the standout city in terms of apartment viability and apartment site opportunity. But if you take Cork, like if I left, we say the Elysian in Cork, I'd be I'd be at in green fields in three minutes. Mm-hmm. Like it's that small. Yeah. The Elysian is in the very centre of Cork. Okay, in some directions that may, may not be the case, but the point I'm coming to is that yeah. you have to have a variety of housing and you have to look at what people want. And that's not developer-led development I'm talking about. Like You're talking about what the market wants. Uh, the market needs... But is need- that being slightly distorted at the moment with, um, say, student accommodation and the PRS sector? I think it is. I, I think it's an extraordinary situation that an apartment block is worth more wholesale then it's what retail. How in goodness can you have a situation that the retail sales to individuals is less than what a wholesale sale to but, an institution? No, but is that the reality or is it a case that this is how we're financing? Because, I will, actually, to be, that's probably not a fair point to make in 2019, but I think certainly in 2015 and 2016, this was the only way that apartment blocks were being financed. So I don't think it was about what's worth more when we finish it. It's how can we get the money to build it. Well, there's that, but you also have a situation recently where blocks that were funded independently of the institutional buyer are being sold to institutional well, buyers. Well, that's because this, this market is maturing. No, because the wholesale value is worth more than the retail value. And I would contend that is an extraordinary situation. Is that because of um, these institutional investors then are getting... Uh, economies of scale um, in terms of asset management and ongoing management? It's because they're, they're, um, it's, it's not so much that, but the rents are very high. Mm-hmm. There's a perception there that renting is almost the only show in town. Mm-hmm. And that's a real difficulty because people can take a long-term view if you have cheap money and you have a rental uh, um, underwrite people can take a long-term view as to what they'll pay. See, I think once we're touching off the rental market, we're starting into a whole bigger conversation. So I'm going to take a short break now, but stay with us as we continue our conversation with Michael O'Flynn, CEO and Chairman of the O'Flynn Group. Stay tuned. Okay, you're welcome back to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Michael O'Flynn, CEO and Chairman of the O'Flynn Group, is still with us. And Michael, just before the break, we were talking about the rental market. And this is maybe, do we need to draw distinctions actually between not just Dublin and Cork in terms of rental, but actually the cities versus um, market towns? Well, I would say I would say the cities, Dublin versus the regions, and I'm including Cork mm-hmm. as a region. But you can, you can take Dublin, Cork, Galway, Limerick, those city Rents areas are exceptionally high. They're second only to Dublin. Yes, which is extraordinary. But you know, I'm very concerned about the regions because the individual investor is being driven out of the market. It's no longer tax efficient for them to be involved. We need incentivization because we just don't need apartments in Dublin. We need them all over the country, or in the case of <coughs> excuse me, in the case of other locations. We need houses for rental. Now, we have a very difficult situation in that a lot of these towns, and they're big towns, small cities, have no investors. So how are these, go, how are these places going to be serviced with rental accommodation? Mm-hmm. There's going to be a scarcity, and that will put pressure on price. And so I just don't think we have any housing strategy for any of the housing areas. I thought that was an interesting point you made. <coughs> you actually felt that there was, whatever about social housing in Ireland, in terms of private housing, there's no unified strategy in place. Well, 
there's no strategy. <laughs> Not even a unified one. There's no strategy. There's nobody saying, but you, what does the industry locators need? Mm-hmm. What? How can we structure a housing mix that, like, we're a critical part of the economic uh, activity in a region. We do Property not... developers and... Yeah, the, and the, the supply of housing. Contractors. Some people call it shelter, but it's everybody needs housing. Mm-hmm. It's... We, we have a rental housing market that's, in my opinion, out of control as regards the cost. We have a social housing sector that isn't being... Pr- isn't being supplied or provided far enough. Do you think that's Do you think that's fair? Because I, I, just looking at what's happening in social housing, I think there's a lot happening that people don't seem to recognise. So, for example, um, in terms of social housing, you know, 40 years ago, money was being spent by local authorities to deliver homes, to build homes, and that was one thing. And um, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, money was being given and it was being leveraged through the Housing Finance Agency. Whereas today, the approved housing bodies, the, the, the top approved housing bodies, are taking the same amount of money. And not only are they leveraging it through the finance agency, but they're also then accessing um, exceptionally low rates of finance. So like sub two and two and a half percent. And they're locking in those kind of interest rates for 25 years from German banks to deliver social housing well, in Ireland. Okay. And and that that to me is a really clever use of resources that you know we're really leveraging. So the same funds that might have built 200 homes can now build 2,000. And that seems like a very smart way to deliver local authority housing because it takes people off the local authority housing lists. But because it's been delivered through approved housing bodies, it's almost like the state doesn't get the credit for not only facilitating this, but actually uh, driving it. I, I Look, I, I would be the first to say that the approved housing bodies are AHBs, as they're called, are doing a great job. Yeah. And they're very much part of this. There's a big gap between the guys who are doing it well and, you know, the top five, six, seven who are doing it very well. And then there's hundreds others, you know. Yeah, so there's, there's a big gap I, opening I, up. And I'm, I think... I'm speaking to the to the well-known names. I don't yeah. I don't really have visibility of the smaller ones. I think they're doing a great job and I think they're providing... They absolutely are. ...an essential um, delivery which would not otherwise happen. Mm-hmm. But... And there's a big but here. You have to look at how much are we cloaking the problem by housing assistance payments or HAPs, the HAP schemes? Like, I'd love to know, you know, in the various regions, how many people are in, in HAP-supported housing? Because that's the deficiency in housing in those areas compared... This didn't exist years ago. Mm-hmm. I would have to say to you that we need affordable housing, and the only way I think affordable housing can be created is by shared ownership or shared equity, like they have in the UK. But we're not facing up to that. Michael, do you think we need to get back to a stage where people are going into, where people are going into local authority homes that, well, either that they move on from those, so um, so where you have HAP assisted or where you're in receipt of a local authority home, that you're not in it for life, that there has to be an element of moving on. <laughs> or there's an element of buying it out and it becomes a family home. At, at the moment, we seem to be geared towards lifetime social rental. I think we are, and I think a lot of people now in this country, because of the, on one side, the macro potential rules, on the other side, the cost of housing, which is partly because of that and the cost of land and levies and all that goes with that. I think you're, you, we're creating a we're creating. Um, a sector of people who are confined to rent, not just in social housing, but in private housing, I think that's very, very serious for people. So what's when, going to when, happen when people hit retirement age and they're no longer creating an income? I think it's going to be a major problem. I think it's, I going, think it's going to be much larger than our pensions issue. Well, I think it is. And I, and I don't understand why we're not facing up to it and discussing it. I think this is a housing strategy that's coming about because we have no strategy. I think if we looked and analysed the housing mix at the moment, those people who are stuck on rent will stay on rent mm-hmm. because, there, in my opinion, there is no prospect of people being able to afford the rent they're paying and at the same time save for a house. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and I think that's well established. 
I, I think it's well established, but, but why why isn't it faced up to? Why isn't somebody saying, hold on, we need to deal with this? Mm-hmm. We're not dealing with it. Do you think that's because um, the, 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 what's pending ahead of us, as in, in 20, 30 years' time, when we have people who are currently in private rental and, and stuck in private rental, and in 10, 20, 30 years' time, when they come to the end of their income-generating lifespan and, and working life, is it because we just don't understand or that we don't... Is, is this too big an issue for us even to try to tackle at the moment? I think the issue of people stuck on rent and the HAP issue is too big an issue for any government to face when, when, when you don't have a clear government majority. And, you know, I think it's, it's a bad indictment of our society that we've created a structure where the average couple, your guard or nurse type, I always describe them as, can't buy a house anymore. Mm-hmm. Those people were the bedrock of some of my earlier housing developments mm-hmm. way back in the day and go back 30 to 40 years. And interestingly enough, another group of people were the private investors who rented out what I consider modest rents. Now, when you say private investors, do you mean kind of the the, the, the people who had one home, so <coughs> the local pharmacist, the local yeah. farmer, you know, the local person who had... You know, one or two properties. Yeah, and I think they're a critical part of a housing sector because well, particularly they, outside of Dublin, they tend to be in the regions. This is the mm. point, and because they tend to be in the regions, they they were very very valuable. And remember, we can't just have a society that's going to allow Dublin to get bigger and bigger, or the city areas to get bigger and bigger. We have to accommodate the, the whole strata of Irish society. We're not doing that. Are we taking away the choice? Because one of the things that came up um, on the on the business panel discussion was about, you know, people want to be within close proximity to local facilities, whether it's infrastructure and things like that. But are we taking into consideration the people who actually do want to live rurally or that want to that want to be able to live away from the cities but still need to be able to generate an income? Now, I know remote working, you know, there are other solutions coming in. But they're not coming in en masse. They're not coming in well, at the scale that we need. First of all, we are taking away choice. Um, and I firm, absolutely believe whatever about the regions in the outer areas, if we can make Dublin, if we can make regions like Cork, Limerick, people will commute to those regions from outlying areas. But... I don't see a situation at the moment where the current strategy of brownfield pretty much only development is going to succeed because what I can see is a lack of viability and that's a lack of any supply. And you're, but you're, are you speaking about houses or apartments? I'm speaking about both. Okay, because you you take the view that we need houses for rental as opposed to just apartments. We need houses for purchase and we need houses for rental. It's not just apartments. Apartments, if we're talking about Dublin only, fine, let's talk about apartments. Right, no, but say outside of Dublin, do you you not see a need for apartments? I do, I do see a need, um, but not the same level or percentage as you do in Dublin. It's part of the problem here that we have historically designed and delivered very poor quality apartments so they weren't for lifestyle they, they didn't suit most people's lifestyles Look, I think apartments suit people at the beginning or at the end of life yeah, but is cycles. that a design is that a design not, flaw, I, know, I, I mean I think the apartments are much better designed and built today and um, so I, I don't think it's a design issue I think there was a design issue for a number of years mm-hmm. I think that has been dealt with but I do think that apartments only will not solve the problem they may go a long way towards solving it in Dublin, but then we'll not solve it in other parts of the country. Okay, well, I'm going to jump topics here to something that I was really surprised to hear your opinion on today. And that is, um, we spoke about briefly about modular construction and methods of modern construction. So you mentioned that your organisation has invested yes. in off-site manufacturing. Yes. yes. Is that in Ireland? Yes. Okay. I'm and slow to talk about it until we get our certification. I know, I understand that. I'm um, sorted and that we're, familiar with, we're well on our way in that regard. Mm-hmm. But I see that as, um, as an insurance investment against skill shortage more than it's going to bring down the price of houses. Mm-hmm. I was very 
open today about it, and I think one of the panelists supported me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean cheaper. It might mean it might mean somewhat cheaper if we were building large volumes. Mm-hmm. But you know what? This is Ireland. You don't build large volumes anywhere. Yeah. And the whole financing world, the banking world, is such today that everything is done in phases again, which is good discipline. So the the large volumes that modular works best doesn't really happen in Ireland no. see, one of the criticisms say of past projects um, particularly anything that we associate with rapid build um, so say the engineers and the designers around that would say that actually many of the issues here was that there was a very convoluted approach so yes you were using off-site manufacturing but you were trying to perhaps or the industry perhaps was trying to pigeonhole them there in and all of the ancillary services were still coming from the traditional sector, whereas um, for, a, for a good modular delivery, you need an expert team. It has to be designed for modular. And today on the panel, there was a reference there to um, rectangular bills that lend themselves well to off-site. And that would be a very old school way of thinking because we yeah, know now that... I was surprised. That modular, you know, we know that that's not the case, that actually we have some beautifully designed modular buildings now. And in fact, the hallmark of success is that when you're outside a building or inside a building, indeed, you, you can't tell. You know, a little bit like the difference between a timber frame and a block-built home, that when you're in it from inside and outside, and essentially you shouldn't be able to tell the difference. And I completely agree, Carol. That's the way it should be. I was surprised with that contribution today. Like, maybe in Scandinavian countries where they have lots of timber, yeah. And they build a lot with timber. Well, I was interested Rectangular to hear that actually... Boxes. But, but I was interested to hear that, um, you know, the, the modular that you're looking at actually is a timber composite. It is. It is, okay. which, which is... Whereas what we've seen traditionally in Ireland is uh, the light-gauge steel. Yeah. Well, you, you, you have you have different forms of modular. The one we're looking at is slightly different. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that we feel is right. I think it's an evolution from the old-fashioned timber frame. But that has a, a part to play as well. But in the overall sense, I think the point the point being made is that we have to think modular, but it's not going to be the silver bullet that people think it's going to be. Is modular only really one element of um, the, the the modern methods of construction? Like there are so many other technologies coming in. So, for example, um, you know, I spoke with um, actually we had we had. Uh, Townmore Construction on the show a couple of months ago and they mentioned that BIM, uh, Building Information Modelling, has been made mandatory on all of their projects since Q3 or Q4 of 2019. So is that, are these the type of technologies that your group are? The, yeah, we look, we're all, we're all getting up to speed with the, with the new technologies. The difficulty, a lot of these have is that you need volume and scale for them to actually work best and I'm afraid in a fragmented Irish market you know whilst you can achieve some savings overall it doesn't mean think housing is going to be created cheaper and I think that's where we're all coming from and there's an ex- there's an expectation of a price reduction for modular that doesn't exist in but reality. But is, is that you see, and again, there seems to be some mixed messaging around that. So um, I, I agree that I don't think um, in turn that modular is going to automatically be cheaper. And in fact, most people who are far more expert in the sector would say the same thing. But where the savings tend to come is through um, the certainty of programme, the speed of delivery, uh, the continuity, the no loss time on site, um, a higher rate of uh, health and safety excellence. So there are all of these contributing factors that feed into the certainty of programme that you're actually getting something finished uh, on time, every time. Yeah, look, that's an absolute advantage uh, and I have to acknowledge that, of course. But we we have figured that a modular type system might save you six to eight weeks. It doesn't, cha- it doesn't save you three to four months six to seven months of a program okay so it's i just think it's overplayed but i do think it's an essential next step for for irish house building but for some of some of it's for different reasons to the reasons that people think 
Okay. Um, right. Well, then let's let's take it back to the work that Offline Group is doing. So, in terms of <coughs> delivery for 2019, where are you? Well, in, in terms of delivery, we're building houses in Cork and Dublin, um, three, probably eight or nine sites in total. Probably build 250 houses this year. We'd love to build 500. We have a platform that could build 500 without thinking, but the, the market isn't there. Viability isn't there on a number of the sites we have. And um, believe it or not, we have a demand in this country of, I said this earlier on the panel, of 35,000 units. Some people would say plus, some people would say 35. Mm -hmm. But we have a capable demand. That's the demand that people can borrow to pay the price to build their needs of 20,000, 21,000. And that's the big issue. And do you think that that's um, because of maybe that growth in wages hasn't coincided with growth in employment in Ireland? Or are we back to the macroprudential rules, central bank rules? Well, look, I don't think we need massive wage increases, but the macroprudential rules are a big factor. Um, I think they are, and I know they're being looked at, which is very interesting in itself. Um, but I, I do think that um, that alone won't, won't fix the housing thing. The housing equation is complex. To make it viable isn't easy. It can happen, but it needs joined up thinking between the government, the, the developers, the local authorities, the state agencies like Irish Water, and you name it. There's a, there's a whole cross-section and actually, that's something I want to drill down a bit more um, in. So we're going to take a short break now, but stay tuned as we'll be discussing more with Michael after the break. So welcome back to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. And in studio with us still is Michael O'Flynn. I'm sorry, I, I actually say in studio, but as people will very plainly hear with the twinkling of glasses that um, we are actually recording down in the Alex Hotel. And there's a great buzz around the place, which is always good to see in December. So, Michael, thank you for staying with us. So just before we went into the break... We were just touching on the issue of viability. We have 15 minutes. Can you solve this problem? Well, sorry. The, <laughs> of course we can solve this problem. But the, to solve any problem, you need, you need to acknowledge you have a problem. And I hear, I hear government people talking about the increase in supply and all those sort of positive uh, uh, phrases. But look, we, we can solve this problem, but it's not an easy one. We spoke before the break on um, the macro potential rules, which which clearly um, there may be some go good news on in the next short while. Um, but we also have to look at the percentage cost of land in an overall house. Before we get on to land, uh, land price, because that is something I want to discuss with you, can I just drill down a little bit more on your take on the macro potential rules? Because this would be something that... Um, Obviously, being much less experienced in the market than you are, it's something that I think is a good thing, that we need credit controls uh, on, on our mortgage lending. So for me, I suppose, having come through the crash, and that was my introduction to, to the property market, and I see that that recovery that is almost that we know is, is mid-cycle at the moment, I deal with with um, professionals all over Ireland, and I know that the recovery in some places hasn't hasn't hit. And, you know, so we're really talking about um, not just Dublin and outside of Dublin. There are pockets of Ireland that are still very much suffering. They've seen very little progress over the last ten years, and I'm not sure that a greater flow of credit is going to help that. Well, just come back to the early part of your question there. The macroprudential rules are too constraining in terms of what people can borrow. Do you I, mean three and a half times their three, salary? The, the loan to income multiplier at three and a half. Mm -hmm. Can I just say... What do you think I, about I, the 10% the deposit for, well, for first-time buyers, but 20% for everybody else? Well, the, the people... I, I think it's strict. It's too strict. Mm -hmm. Do we have exceptions to that, of course? But the best people get the exceptions. They're the people who don't actually need it at all. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say the loan to income is is at three and a half. Hopefully, it'll go to four or four and a half in in the review. Do you think that's likely? Well, sorry, look, something has to happen. I doubt it'll go to four and a half, but I'm, I might as well say what I what I think yeah. needs to happen. But, uh, like, but uh, the macroprudential rules are a good thing. Yeah, they're a good instrument. Yeah. 
I wish we had them back in the day when things went mad. I only wish we had the macroprudential rules. So don't get, anyone get me wrong here. I'm in favour of the rules. Mm-hmm. In the UK, they're four and a half, the factor. In New Zealand, where the governor comes came from, they're five. Mm-hmm. So it, the other countries um, have different ways of looking at it. Did we but I would say, well, you took the words out of my mouth. I would say we're the most stringent regime of any country you want to look at now. Mm-hmm. And we're very good at this country of, at overdoing things, or overdoing on the way up and overdoing on the way down. And I would say that we have overdone it. We need to get them more realistic because people at this moment in time are long-term consigned to rental. Mm-hmm. Unless you have sibling support or parental support, let's not create a country where unless you have family money, you're excluded from the housing market. Mm-hmm. That is wrong. And I think the macroprudential rules are part of that problem. But as I keep saying, they're not the only solution to the problem. I mean... Changing the rules won't change the market overnight. There's okay, well then let's, let's get into the issue of <coughs> well, land prices. Yes, I think land, land management, zoning um, and availability, I think is way behind in this country. Now, we, the, we, at the start, of the, at the top of the show, you said that you feel we have poor land management in Ireland. So I need to ask the direct question um, because it is related NAMA, was NAMA effective? Like, take it outside of your own experience with them as an organisation, as, as a government agency, was NAMA effective? Well, you see, NAMA would say they were, the government would say they were, because their remit... What would you say? Well, sorry, it, it, from an industry point of view, mm-hmm. they were not effective because they, were, they had to liquidate assets to pay back bonds, and their objectives didn't run in line with the normal crisis time if you were dealing with a bank because they had a they had a, a lifespan they weren't looking ahead nama you know is now down to the was last. it a catch and kill approach well catch and kill is very strong but uh, um it, it's you know it, it's um it's strategy was dictated for them to take borrowers over and liquidate as much as possible. So the, the people with a lot of good assets got, got them liquidated at a time when the market wasn't really good. Mm-hmm. So you had a situation where the outside investors from abroad were picking up assets at way below replacement cost. Mm-hmm. Should we all knew they were only going to go one way. It's yeah. an awful pity that um, NAMA couldn't have taken a different view. A more long-term approach. Yeah, but you see, NAMA were dealing with everyone together and there was no separation of skills or separation of who are full-time in property who are part-time how can we look at was expertise (coughs) expertise really wasn't acknowledged even though we were fortunate to be one of the companies that they supported and we ended up with a loan sale but in a lot of in a lot of cases they inherited loans from the banks where there was little or no expertise in giving out the loan Mm -hmm. so there was a, a bit of a one-size-fits-all approach, which was rather okay. unfortunate. But Namadin weren't forward servicing land or they weren't looking ahead for, with plannings because they didn't see themselves as having a five- to ten-year remit. So you have to understand where they were coming from, as this thing from a company like ours, and many of them, would be forward planning. And so there was an immediate conflict there. If... If the economy was going to completely stop, which no one believed it was, because there were a lot of fundamentals right, even the bank industry was was causing severe problems, the NAMA strategy might have been more akin to an economy that was going to grind to a halt. But the minute it turned, we were going to be caught flat-footed, as we, as we have been, because NAMA didn't see themselves as future providers. And... Nobody was was planning ahead. So, like, we don't have enough land zoned in the right place that's available. Why? Because we don't have macro policies directing local authorities to make sure that we provide enough land that the percentage of a house never passes a certain level because there's enough land available. The reason land becomes expensive is there's a shortage I mean, as a shortage, people will take a view on house prices. Mm-hmm. That is a road to nowhere. 
And that's the road, unfortunately. Despite the recent um, experiences, we're back very close to that already, and which is quite amazing. So were you surprised to see, I suppose, what can only be tra- described as a transition from NAMA to the land agency? Because that's the Land Development Agency, because that's under another name. That's exactly what happened. I, I'm, I am surprised with the Land Development Agency. I, I, I still, we heard from a board member this morning. I still don't know fully what it is because I've heard mixed messages. But I suppose a lot of people have come from NAMA into Land Development Agency, which has created its own concerning concern and suspicion. I think they could have a very important role to play as an enabler, as a facilitator. I do not see them as a direct provider. And some of the soundings coming from them would suggest they are. Even this morning from the board member, I don't think he was denying the fact that they hope to have some direct provision of affordable housing from state lands. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be fraught with danger vis-a-vis state aid or vis-a-vis the Competition Act and all sorts of areas that I think the last thing we need is something that's going to be challenged. We need something that's going to work. Okay, well, then, let's let's talk about what might actually work. You know, before we finish up today, I'd love to get maybe some insight from you as to maybe the type of housing policy that we need and the policy changes that we need to see right now. Well, we need we need a housing policy, and and that may look involve reducing VAT temporarily or giving some incentives for apartments. Or Why do you for, think that hasn't happened already? You know, I mean, even, because, even to see it in tourism and not I'll, to see it in construction seems I'll, bizarre. I'll answer it for you because they're fixated with the developer running away with the money. At this stage, they are. I've said it over and over. If that changes tomorrow morning, whether you have a VAT clause in my contract or not, and a lot of solicitors take out the VAT clause when they should be leaving them in, we will reduce the price by the VAT reduction. Have, but not everybody may, might do that. But even if there is a temporary disagreement around who who gets the VAT reduction. In a very short space of time, it'll feed into the house price. It'll feed into more viability. More viability means more supply. This is not rocket science. They need. They should be thinking that way. We went into Europe at 9%. We're now at 13.5%. Apparently, we can come below 9%. I don't get, I don't agree with that. You can change anything by agreement. You go back to Europe and say... But particularly when you look at what's happening in Northern Ireland and uh, England and Wales... <coughs> You go back to say to Europe and say, look, we have a problem here. We have a crisis here. We can't supply housing. So that's an issue for Europe as much as it is for Ireland. Is there a political or a perception issue here? Uh, you know, is the, the government of the day, are they just so afraid to be seen to be actively supporting developers? Well, listen, we haven't lost our tag fully, unfortunately. People are still concerned with any initiative that might look towards supporting a developer. You know, which is bizarre, and I think that's why we ended up with the help to buy scheme and the guys that it was. You know, it was it was packaged as something for buyers when really it's very clearly and plainly a supply a supply side initiative, and it just wasn't popular well, look, or, or maybe 40, politically possible to call it that. Forty percent of our buyers at the moment avail of help to buy, which is excellent. That's good. It's, it's vital. Yeah, like that's more supply. Mm-hmm. If you take away the help to buy you'd have a lot more people on rent mm-hmm. and a lot more people heading towards social or whatever. Um, now, can I ask your opinion then, if 40% of your um, buyers coming in, does that, would that tally with, um, you know, 40% of your buyers being first-time buyers? No, or no. are you seeing people returning to Ireland but yet not able to avail of it because they oh, haven't paid uh, income I, tax? Yeah, here? there are a number of people who can't avail of it. I now, that seems incredibly unfair for I, people I who agree. left during a time of financial distress. I, I agree, so. and may, maybe they, they should means test some people mm. and give it to these people who are returning and, and who mm. desperately need it. So I, I do think mm. it's a vital incentive. I, I thought they might have tailored it somewhat, but we're we're very glad they kept it. So I don't want to be sound critical of it. Mm-hmm. But I think well, and it did look for a while like we were in danger of it maybe being I reduced d- in, in value. I, I, I think we were, but I think that was a good strategy by the government. Well, isn't that kite flying? Do you know, I'll say one thing, it's the laziest form of policy making, but actually it has served us, it has served us better than if they didn't do it. Oh, there's no question. Yeah. Um, So there's land, there's levies, you could take a view on levies, you could have schemes that that you have levy um, 
claim clawbacks or some mm-hmm. system that goes to the purchaser. You, I'm sure you could come up with different ways between levies, VAT, land, um, you know, in terms of um, reducing house prices. But make no mistake about it. We want house prices to reduce as much as we want affordability to be improved. It is not a simple matter of doing one thing. One thing, one move here will not fix this. It needs a number. But you won't fix it unless you accept you have a problem. And I see a government who are afraid to accept they have a problem because that would mightn't feed well into an election that has been looming for the last couple of years. And unfortunately, the numbers in this country may make it very hard to have policies en- enacted that have longer-term success. And rebuilding Ireland was really supposed to be the hope of something that, with multi-party support, would outlive the term of any single government. Yeah, and I, I don't... I mean, I see a lot of criticism at the moment across the political divide. And, like, like when it comes to housing, when it comes to health, can we not take those political footballs away and just have policies that... Well, whoever, not, not while you've got people who are in the door and worried about saving their seat in three, years, well, three and a half look, years' I'm time. I'm not naive. I know how the thing works, but if you are to work for the good of this country, certain critical um, components, as in health, as in housing, can't be... If we do this, the opposition will, will criticise us. If we don't do this, we are criticised. Mm-hmm. Or the opposition are maybe keeping their magic in case they might get into power. Look, that's not good. And we're, we're an industry that's totally impacted by the politics of the day. Which is ridiculous when you compare it to the likes of tourism or board beer, you know, our, our food industry. So it's not that this has to be the way. It doesn't have to be the way. We can see um, across other important sectors to the Irish economy that this doesn't happen. There's no logic to it, Carl, but mm. we're dealing with a, a small country and we're dealing with a political divide that has a huge impact on our everyday lives and business. Mm. Michael, before we finish up, I'd like to maybe separate you slightly from the brand because, you know, you're, you're CEO and chairman of the group that you, that you co-founded, um, that, you, that bears your family name. What will your legacy be in Ireland? Look, I, I wasn't that well known before the NAMA crisis. I felt very strongly as a developer that we were being demonised, so I started to speak out. I didn't have any personal guarantees. I acted and behaved responsibly, and I just wanted people out there to know that it's it's wrong to castigate everybody in the same way. I would like to think, because of the various activities I'm involved with besides my own business, that I have helped to leave behind a better place than I found. Michael, you're a true captain captain of this industry and I genuinely appreciate you taking the time with me here today. So that was Michael O'Flynn, CEO and Chairman of the O'Flynn Group. Um, thank you for joining us today. You can get in touch with the show by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com or go on to Twitter at iPropertyRadio. So that's it from us um, for this year. As we get ready to enjoy a Christmas break, we would like to thank all of our guests who joined us throughout 2019. We'd like to thank our producer Katie Talon and Adam Duke on sound. And a special thank you to all of our listeners this year. We know how busy you are and we appreciate your support throughout our very first year on air. I look forward to lots more industry chat in 2020. But for now, on behalf of all the Property Matters team, I'd like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a prosperous New Year.